are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Hey everybody, David Guzik here. So glad that you could join us today for this uh, live Q&A. I have missed these times together because of travel or other obligations. The last several weeks, I haven't been able to do this question and answer time live. This is my pattern. Whenever I can't do it live, I try to pre-record it and publish it at the exact same time, uh, 12 noon Pacific time on Thursdays, when I would normally have these live times. But I tell you, my preference is to have these live times because I really enjoy the live interaction with people through the chat window. Though, I want to begin this week with a question that came in over email or response to YouTube videos, and a couple of questions. One from a friend named Gino in Florida. Hi, Gino. Hope you're watching. And another from Joseph. Joseph asked this. He said, sir, are Pentecostals heretics? That was just a simple question. Are Pentecostals heretics? And then Gino asked this question. He said, can your view on the timing of the Lord's return be considered heretical? You know, pre-tribulation, post-tribulation. I know that's a little bit of inside baseball for people who aren't familiar with those terms, but I, I just want to give that, that kind of question the way that my friend Gino asked it. He said, I've seen reformed doctrine people mock those who believe in the gifts. You know what I mean? And who say that speaking in tongues is demonic. So would you say that those people who believe in Reformed theology are heretical at that point? Listen, Joseph, Gino, let, let me give you my response to that. I think that we need to be very careful with the word heretic. In my view, and listen, I'm willing to have discussion on this. If you want to discuss it, leave something in the comments. Maybe we can go back and forth on this. But my view is simply this, that we need to be careful with the word heretic and understand this, that somebody can be a bad teacher. They can be a dangerous teacher even. They can be in some sense a false teacher without being a heretic. What do I mean by that? Well, here's how I define heretic. Now, again, I understand that in a strict um, source of the biblical word heretic, it has to do with somebody who causes division. I'm talking about the more common usage of heretic, not only from the scriptures, but also in the history of the church. Here's how I define heretic that if you believe what a heretic teaches, you will go to hell. In other words, this isn't somebody who just has some wrong understandings of biblical doctrine. This isn't somebody who has maybe some significant error in their understanding of some things in the Bible, but simply this, if you believe what they teach, you will go to hell, and those people who teach themselves themselves, those people are going to hell. Now listen, there are heretics to be sure, but let's be careful with that label heretic. I call it the H-bomb, not the hydrogen bomb in terms of using those kind of things. The H-bomb is the heretic word. And for me, I like to reserve that word for people who teach things that if you believe what they teach, you're not just an error. You're not just a bad or a hindered disciple. You're going to hell. And those people themselves are going to hell. Man, that's a radical level. And so I think we need to reserve that label heretic. And we just got to agree. 
in our culture at large, there's just too much labeling going on. We see this in the political world. We see this in the culture debates that we have right now. What people want to do is just want to label people and they don't give a thoughtful engagement of those people's ideas. I think there needs to be, in general, both in the culture, in politics, and among believers, there needs to be less labeling and more thoughtful engagement of ideas. Now, let me say, without hesitation, a thoughtful engagement of the ideas may lead someone to say, that person is a heretic, that teaching is a heresy. Absolutely. But we need to be slow. So, Gino, to go back to your question, no, disagreements about the timing of end times events, that's not heresy. Something like a heresy would be this, to say that Jesus Christ is not coming again. But the timing of his coming, the events surrounding his coming, Christians can disagree on that and still be very much within the family of God. The same has to do with spiritual gifts. I believe that the gifts of the Spirit, for the most part, I mean, it's a nuanced view, so we want to talk about a lot more. But for the most part, the gifts of the Spirit continue to this day. I, I absolutely believe that. But for brothers and sisters who disagree with me, I don't regard them as heretics. For I, I may regard them as wrong. I may regard some of their teaching as unhelpful, hindering to discipleship, sometimes even with different doctrines and such, Not some, sometimes even dangerous, but not necessarily in my book, heretical. And Joseph, to answer your question, are Pentecostals heretics? No. Now, are there some among the Pentecostal family who are so way out there who they are heretics? No doubt. But look, let's be very careful about something. We need to understand that salvation or damnation is not a matter of what group you belong to. It's not like being a part of the right group gets you automatically into heaven, nor is it that being among what many people think of as a wrong group automatically sends you to hell. God looks at the individual believer and what their personal faith or denial of Jesus Christ, the real Jesus, as he's represented to us in the Bible. If an individual has a real relationship, a real repentance, a real faith in the real Jesus, in his death and resurrection, in what God has done for us to save us, not what we can do for ourselves, that is what determines whether or not a person goes to heaven or hell. It's not fundamentally a matter of, well, you belong to this group, so you're going to heaven. Oh, you belong to this group, so you're going to hell. No, no, we don't believe in that. We believe that it's fundamentally each individual who must answer to God for themselves. So we need to be a little bit careful about acting as if salvation or damnation is a matter of which group you belong to or don't belong to. All right, after that opening, let's get to some of these questions that have come in. I saw right away that my friend Connor Barry gave a question. Let me read it to you from our chat window. He says this, hi, David, I've been teaching the Apostles' Creed. Good on you, Connor. I, I, I like teaching from the Apostles' Creed. I've been teaching from the Apostles' Creed and have been specifically interested or invested in one of the more controversial statements in the Apostles' Creed, Jesus's dissension into Hades. Uh, in Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, Jesus gives the example of Jonah as a time frame. Just as he was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be under the earth. Tangentially, this could also mean that Jonah actually died in the great fish and the Lord restored him. By the way, Connor, I don't know if you know, but the great Bible teacher, J. Vernon McGee, he was absolutely insistent on that point. 
J. Vernon McGee, who is a wonderful Bible teacher, and I, I wish I could have 1% of the impact that that man has had on the world, even though he's passed into glory many years ago. He continues to have a huge impact through, his, through the Bible radio program. J. Vernon McGee was a very strong believer in the idea that Jonah actually died in the belly of the great fish and God resurrected him. Personally, I don't really go for that, but I see where people get that idea. Anyway, you're saying, um, you're saying that God gave him this. So what about this idea of, as it says in the Apostles' Creed, Jesus descending into Hades? Well, it is a fascinating thing, Connor. And I just say this, there are, passages, specifically in Ephesians is one, that speak of Jesus descending into the lower parts of the earth after his work on the cross, but before his resurrection. I take that, and many Christians have taken that, in the sense that the Apostles' Creed means it, that Jesus went to Hades, at that time the abode of the dead, both faithful and damned, and what Jesus did was he set captivity captive those who were looking forward to the finished work of the Messiah on the cross were then able to go to heaven to paradise with God and since that time Hades is basically a place of those awaiting the final judgment and damnation hell in the sense of Gehenna is not properly in function yet that awaits after the great white throne judgment. But before Jesus has finished work on the cross, Jesus, as he explained in the story of Lazarus and the rich man, which for other reasons, I regarded as being a story and not a parable. Jesus said that there was a blessed area of Hades and there was a tortured area of Hades. Now, there are many people in the Christian world who disagree with that approach. They take the idea that Jesus, um, going into the lower parts of the earth is just a poetic way of saying that Jesus died and was buried. And I would suppose if somebody wants to take that poetry to the Apostles' Creed, that's what those people would say of that. Now, I readily admit that this is an area of mystery that we wish the Bible told us a lot more about, so we have to be very careful with our thoughts about this. In other words, we can't assume the Bible tells us more than it actually does. Can I confidently say that Jesus did this thing of descending into Hades and setting the captives free and, and shut down sort of the blessed part, the bosom of Abraham part of Hades, and now everybody goes directly to heaven and, and uh, excuse me, all those who die in the Lord go directly to heaven, and all those who die in the Lord don't go to Hades but now go to heaven, et cetera. Can I absolutely say that? No, I, I can't absolutely. I wish the biblical evidence was clearer on that. But to me, it's a very plausible working out of what the Bible does actually say to us about that. So, uh, Connor, that's how I see it. The converse argument of that is just to say that descended into Hades or into the lower parts of the earth, as it says in Ephesians, is just a poetic way of saying that Jesus was buried, uh, that he was entombed, if you want to use a more technical usage of that. I'm glad. Hope you're enjoying that coffee. Connor, give me a review on how good it is. Next question from Joel. What are your thoughts on the guards of Jesus's tomb? Were they Roman or temple guard? Mm. Joel, that is a good question. And I'll tell you why it's a good question. Again, folks, I do a lot of this from memory. I'm not looking up chapter and verse because I want to get right to the questions. So I can't tell you which gospel this is in. 
But when the religious leaders came to Pilate and when they demanded a guard for the tomb, Pilate said to them, you have a guard. Now, here's the question. When Pilate said, you have a guard, did he say, I am giving you a Roman guard? Or was he saying, you already have a temple guard, do it yourself. I think it was a Roman guard because these seem to report back to Pilate. And it just seems more logical that it would be a Roman guard. That, that is the first reading, but I can't eliminate the possibility that it was a temple guard because they had that kind of security force for the temple itself. But I, I would say, as I read the Gospels, the evidence seems to me to be that it was a Roman guard with a slight possibility that it was a temple guard. And it all hinges on that phrase that Pilate said to the religious leaders, you have a guard. Good question there, Joel. Uh, a witness for Jesus. Hi, David. How come there is no Sunday school at Calvary Chapels? Also, can you recommend any good ministries on evangelism? All right, witness for Jesus. Uh, I know a few Calvary chapels that have a Sunday school type adult education program. And what a witness is for Jesus is saying here is he's thinking about kind of the classic American phenomenon of there being an adult education program on Sunday mornings where typically you have a worship service and then either before or after, normally before, but not always, before or after the worship service, there is what they call Sunday school. And these are adult education programs all the way down to children for, um, you know, like teaching doctrine and teaching through books of the Bible and maybe stuff for married couples or other sort of topicals and things like this. Now, there's a few Calvary chapels I know that have such programs, but you're absolutely right. It's pretty rare among our Calvary chapel family. And I'll tell you why in general, because uh Calvary chapels especially arose and came to great uh, spread, their, their area of great growth was during a time when in most pulpits, I'm not saying all, but in most pulpits across America, there wasn't much good Bible teaching coming from the pulpit. Uh, there might be evangelistic preaching, but not much good Bible teaching. And so Bible teaching happened in the Sunday school groups, if it happened at all. Calvary Chapel said, let's do the Bible teaching at what other people would call the worship service. And because it kind of replaced that, and then other groups that would meet those adult education nights that would meet perhaps on other things, a men's Bible study, a couple's Bible study, a recovery group, those things that might normally happen on Sunday morning switch to other times during the week. And that's the best answer I could give you, Witness for Jesus. It is, it's, to me, it's purely a pragmatic thing, whatever works best. We're not commanded when we can have these kind of things, when we can or can't from the Bible. We should just be pretty pr pragmatic and see whatever works best for us. Okay, and uh, good resources, ministries on evangelism. Wow, there's a lot of them out there. Uh, Living Waters is a great one. Um, I recommend a guy on YouTube that I really respect, a guy named Mike Winger. He does a lot of apologetics and evangelism things. Look up Mike Winger on your YouTube channel. Man, he's got a lot of great resources out there, and I'm sure you can find some other ones as well. Alice says, yay, you are live. Yes, Alice, it is good to be back live. So, David, we didn't baptize our baby. We dedicated him. Does it mean that he can't receive the Holy Spirit until he gets baptized? 
Well, Alice, I don't know if you knew this, but you're asking something that's a bit of a hobby horse for me. Uh, I am a very strong proponent of the idea that uh, believers should be baptized and we should not baptize our children until they can come to a credible profession of faith. And I think that um, often, I'm not going to say always at all, but often the teaching of infant baptism isn't just incorrect. I do believe it's incorrect according to scripture, scriptures, but it's often dangerous because I believe that there are many people who go to hell assuming they were saved because they were baptized as babies. Now that may come from all different church traditions, Roman Catholic, uh, perhaps Orthodox, perhaps uh, Protestantism, whatever it would be. But I would just say this, there are many people who go to hell assuming they're saved because they were baptized as babies. Now there's a lot to get onto. I dream in my mind of doing a YouTube video series on this because it's a subject that interests me a lot. But no, I would just say that the filling of the Holy Spirit is not um, required by baptism. No, the filling of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit can be upon a child as God wills. Let's remember, John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit in the womb. That's a remarkable thing for us to know from the Gospels, that, that obviously he was not baptized yet. He was still in the womb, and nevertheless, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. So when our children come to a credible profession of faith, we could and we should baptize them uh, however, a person can be filled with the Holy Spirit and be asked to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And by the way, if somebody is old enough and uh, knowledgeable enough to ask for that filling of the Holy Spirit, it shows that it's very likely that they can and have come to a credible profession of faith. Thanks for that, Alice. Let's keep going on. Anthony, man, it's great to see you. He says, um, Anthony says this, there is a gentleman I listened to for his political commitment but his religious thoughts are a little different, of course. He says, Christians never sin, but I was raised to believe that we sin daily. What do we believe? Well, <laughs> Anthony, I think it's pretty clear that Christians sin and will sin until our salvation is complete. Let's always remember that our salvation, you could say, is in three tenses. We are saved. We are being saved and we will be saved. Each one of those three aspects are true. And until our salvation is complete, right now we are saved from the penalty of sin. We can walk in freedom from the power of sin. And one day we will be freed from the panel, excuse me, from the presence of sin. I forgot my third P. It's uh, penalty, power, and presence. And no, we, we will still sin. And so you can read about that in the first chapter of First John. Go ahead and read that sometime, Anthony, when you got a chance. You'll see how John says, if anyone says, and he's speaking of brothers and sisters, that he has no sin, he's a liar and the truth is not in us. No, we will sin until our salvation is complete in our glorification before Jesus Christ. That's one of the things that makes me say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Thanks for the question, Anthony, and it's great to hear from you. I suppose I'm supposed to pause just for a moment here and to say thank you for all those who have tuned in. Uh, remember to click the thumbs up, the like button that helps with our visibility, and remember to subscribe if you haven't subscribed yet. Okay, let's keep on going. Uh, Isaac, 
Hi, Isaac. He gives a question and he says, I was talking to my Calvinist friend. By the way, Isaac, I'm glad to hear that you have friends that are Calvinists. We should have open hearts towards those whom we may disagree with in God's family. But he says, David, I was talking to my Calvinist friend who was telling me that God has his elect of whom are chosen to be saved. From their point of view, what is the value of evangelism then? Well, Isaac, that's a good question. Now, you ask the question from their point of view. So let me try to answer that to the best of my knowledge, how a Calvinist or someone who believes in Reformed theology would answer that question. I would say that they see the value of evangelism in two senses. Number one, they see the value of evangelism in God uses the proclamation of his gospel to bring people to faith. In other words, that is a mechanism or a means which God uses to bring people, to uh, create new life into people. So that, that is one of the mechanisms that God uses, a, a means that he has for bringing people to faith. Therefore, it's important that we do that so that God has, so to speak, something to use. Although we would say God could use anything, but his ordinary means is to use the preaching of the word. So that's one thing I would say. The second reason a Reformed person or a Calvinistic person, well, either way, I wouldn't uh, disagree with that first reason, I would say. And, and, and here's the second reason they would state is that just out of obedience, God has commanded us to evangelize. He commanded us to preach the gospel. And even if our evangelistic efforts resulted in nobody getting saved or had no role in a person's salvation, we should do it just purely out of obedience. So that's kind of the idea that from a reformed or Calvinistic perspective, that's the best answer I could give trying to answer as they would answer. Uh, again, we believe that God does use the preaching of the gospel, the preaching of his word. And that's one of the reasons why we also believe that it's actually obedient. We just believe this. I would just say for myself, I believe that men and women have a real choice whether or not they will accept or reject Jesus Christ. Now, I don't believe anybody can accept or reject Jesus Christ. Uh, excuse me, nobody can accept Jesus, can put their faith in him. I said accept or reject. I mean, nobody can believe upon Jesus unless the Holy Spirit does a prior work in them. That's the only way it's ever going to happen. But I do believe that that prior work is not strictly speaking, regeneration. Now, there's a lot of reasons why I believe that we could go into it. I'm not going to go into it right now. But yes, I believe a prior work of the Holy Spirit is necessary. I think the scriptures teach that. Uh, but I do believe that men and women have a real choice. I'm not entirely comfortable saying that they have a free will because our will can be bound by many things. But I don't believe we're robots. I don't believe we're automatons. I believe that we have a real choice whether or not we will accept Jesus Christ. Okay, uh, continuing on. Um, Ian says, just received a copy of Standing in Grace, limited my free time, but absolutely love the book so far. Great help. Well, Ian, I'm great. You're helping me to talk just a little bit about a book I wrote some years ago called Standing in Grace. You can get it on Amazon. You can get it from the Enduring Word website. From Amazon or Audible, you can also get it as an audiobook. Look, I like the book. I wrote it out of a work that God did in my life regarding his grace. 
basically what I try to do without calling it as much is I just try to walk through what the New Testament says about God's grace. So um, Standing in Grace is the name of the book. If you're interested, go to Amazon or Audible or our website, EnduringWord.com. And uh, Ian, I'm very, very pleased to hear that the book has been a benefit of you. Uh, Levy says, David, you should do this more often. Well, I do think I should do it more often. I like doing this. Matter of fact, I like doing this a lot because um, I enjoy this kind of live interaction with people. Again, if you don't see me live on one of these, it's because of my schedule somehow would not allow it, and I do a pre-recorded version. Um, thumbs up from William, from Sonny. Great, Sonny. Thanks. Uh, William says this, David, I hope all is well. Would you give a quick synopsis on your view of the rapture? I'm not one of those people that focus on the end times, but I am curious on your position. Well, William, I could say this. And, and first of all, not only do I understand that there are different perspectives on this within the Christian family, there are Christians who believe that there is basically no such thing as a rapture, even though I believe that according to 1 Thessalonians, that it does tell us that there will be this catching away of the church and that the church, God's people, will meet the Lord in the air. I, I think that's pretty plain. As for the timing of it, it, it really relates to a whole prophetic scenario. But I, I do just want to say that I completely understand why believers differ on this. And, and I do want to say this too. I don't believe that there is any bulletproof problem-free approach to biblical prophecy. I think that any approach to biblical prophecy, uh, premillennial, postmillennial, amillennial, any approach to biblical prophecy, preterist, futurist, historicist, whatever, uh, any approach to biblical prophecy, uh, pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib, pre-wrath. I'm spouting off terms that you may or may not be familiar with, but I'm just trying to say there's a lot of different perspectives on these things. And let me just say this. Every one of these has problems. I think part of what a mature understanding of this is to say, number one, that uh, I have studied the problems of the different positions and I prefer the problems of my position than the problems of the other positions. I, I have an easier time with the problems of my position. And, and let me say, I am, and I'll answer your question directly here, William. I am premillennial. Uh, I believe that Jesus Christ will return before he sets up a reign upon the earth that will actually extend forever, but has a definable thousand year aspect to it. I'm premillennial. And in regards to timing of the rapture, I'm what we call pre-tribulational. I believe that the church will be caught up, as is described in 1 Thessalonians, before the uh, 70th week of now before the Antichrist begins this a um, uh, this agreement, this covenant, so to speak, with the people of Israel. Now, I know that there's problems and dangers to my position. One of the problems with my position is people have used it as an excuse for escapism and non-engagement with the culture around them or with not being purposeful about preaching the gospel. And let me just say this, any understanding of prophecy that makes people not occupy until Jesus comes, any understanding of prophecy that makes us fatalistic and escapist in our attitude, 
You may have the right ideas about the doctrine, but you're not holding those doctrines in the correct way. God wants us to occupy until he comes. He wants us to be engaged with the culture around us. And even though we say, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus, and we long for his return, and I think we should, we should be busy about the Lord's business right here, right now, until he does come. I believe that very strongly. I think you can tell by the inflection in my voice. Now, uh, to put it plainly, that, that's my perspective. Maybe we can talk about this in greater depth on another time, but I hope I answered your question there, William. Uh, William also says, also the Enduring Word website and app are such a blessing to my life and ministry and study. William, I am so happy to hear that. Um, we do. We have a great app. Now, the app right now is currently available only for the iPhone, uh, but you can see I have an older model iPhone. Uh, but Soon it'll be coming out for the Android. I feel bad saying that because three or four weeks ago I said it was coming soon. I've been saying it's within the next couple of weeks. It is going to come soon. Some of these things are difficult and can't be hurried, but it will come out for Android soon. Also with some big improvements for the app on the um, iPhone platform. Uh, Jana says, please answer Agnes's question. Um, maybe, oh, I'm sorry, uh, Agnes, I missed your question. Let me deal with it here. It says this. If I die struggling to overcome a certain sin as a believer, will I go to hell? How to overcome the struggle of sinful thoughts so that I can be right with God? Oh, Agnes, Agnes, God bless you, dear child. Let me just say this. The fact that you are worried about this question, I'm going to read it one more time because sometimes people. You know, I, I read things a little too fast. Let me read it again. Agnes has this question. If I die struggling to overcome a certain sin as a believer, will I still go to hell? How can I overcome the struggle of sinful thoughts so I can be right with God? Agnes, my dear sister in Jesus Christ, and I want to say, I, I can, without 100% confidence, I can say with a fair degree of confidence that you are my sister in Christ because you care about these things. Agnes, do you realize that only somebody whose life has been changed, whose heart has been changed by Jesus Christ, really even cares about these questions? Agnes, let me just say, every one of us will be sinful and incomplete until we pass from this world to the next. What we look for is a growth of grace in our life. And we're never going to reach the place of sinless perfection on this side of eternity. And so if you are struggling to overcome sin, you keep your eyes on Jesus and what he has done for you. Sometimes when people struggle with sin, their greatest problem is too much of a self-focus. Just like we see in the Apostle Paul, as he described at the end of Romans chapter 7. The answer for this is to put our eyes squarely on Jesus and the greatness of the work that he has done for us. Agnes, we can't save ourselves by our own dedicated battle against sin. It just doesn't work that way. But we are saved because of who Jesus Christ is. 
by who he is and what he did for us, especially what he did by standing in our place. We as guilty sinners, he stood in our place and took all the punishment and all the shame and all the guilt that our sin deserved. He took it upon himself on the cross. And when he rose to new life, those who put their trust in him, even now, thousands of years later, they rise to new life in him. Agnes, keep struggling against sin. Don't surrender in the battle against sin. And I'm waving as if I was waving a white flag, even though this is a black pen. Agnes, don't give up in the battle against sin, but you can't save yourself by battling against sin. Only Jesus can save you. So yes, God wants you to continue the battle against it, including sinful thoughts the best you can. Although please remember, Agnes, that sinful thoughts may pass through our mind. We just need the grace and the discipline before the Lord to not seize our mind upon those thoughts. But Agnes, as much as I encourage you, I implore you, put your faith in Jesus Christ. Think upon him often how great Jesus is, how loving Jesus is, how wonderful what Jesus did on the cross is for you and for me and for all of God's family. I hope you can do that. I hope you can do that, Agnes. And God bless you, dear sister. And Jana, thank you for reminding me to answer Agnes's question. For some reason, I uh, skipped it. All right, last question here that I'm gonna deal with. Redemption in Christ asks, if you had 30 seconds to share with a Jehovah's Witness on the go, what scripture would you share to perhaps leave them thinking? Thank you again for all your labor in the Lord. Well, you're very welcome. I enjoy doing this. So it is labor, but it's a joyful labor. If I had 30 seconds to share with a Jehovah's Witness, I think I would do this. I would talk to them about grace. Because if there's anything that the world of the cults, and we started this session talking about heretics, listen, the world of the cults presents to us such a substantially different Jesus than the Jesus of the Bible, that, that, that there's not salvation in the world of the watchtower, in the world of Jehovah's Witnesses. And so if a person does believe what the watchtower teaches about who Jesus is and how to be right with God, they will not make it to heaven. What I would do is I would talk about grace because this is one area where those who follow the teaching of the watchtowers get it wrong. They really are a system where one, one must save themselves through their own efforts, through marking down their time, through uh, doing good and not bad. Uh, talking about the grace of God that brings salvation, I think could be a quick 30 second thing to get somebody thirsty for the grace of God. That's where we are, and that's where we want others to be, thirsty for God's grace, not trying to save or justify ourselves before God. Anyway, uh, God bless you. I'm very happy that you could join me today. I pray that each and every one of you, I'm recording this on the Thursday uh, before Easter Sunday. I hope every one of you have a blessed Good Friday, remembering what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. I pray each and every one of you have a wonderful, blessed Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday, when we remember the glorious resurrection of Jesus. And I just want to thank you for joining in. Thank you for having interest in the ministry of Enduring Word, uh, where we have a lot of Bible resources at EnduringWord.com. God bless you, everybody who helps and prays for and supports the work. It's a blessing to be a part of this with you. Thank you for joining us, and God bless you. Bye-bye. 
You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.